Job chapter 2, and we'll cover the entire chapter today, as well as other passages in Job, well, 1 to 10, actually. But I'm going to begin with verses 7 through 10. So please look with me in Job chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. It says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. I want to zoom in on that question. You see it highlighted on the screen in yellow. Where Job responds to this awful suffering with the question to his wife, shall we not receive good from God and not evil? And in that question, there's an assumption. The assumption is, That God is ultimately responsible for everything in this world. Good and evil. But we often ask, is that true? I submit to you this morning that the book of Job says the quiet part out loud. That is, it causes us to ask questions that we might be afraid to ask. If we're honest, we admit that there are times, despite all of our theology, our confession of faith, and those expected pat answers that we get, that we look around the world, and we look at our circumstances, and we just want to cry out, who's in control around here? Who's in charge? Who's running this thing? And I pray that today from the book of Job we would address that question. So let's ask the author of this text for his help. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come before your ancient and inspired, infallible word. And that, Lord, we can ask these raw and vulnerable questions. That we know that we're not going to get pat answers, but we will receive eternal truth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to teach us truth today, truth that we can hold on to in the midst of all suffering and all chaos. In Christ's name, amen. So the question we want to ask today is who is in control? Who's in control? It's a question we ask in everyday life, is it not? Um, I remember my time as a teacher. I taught middle and high school. And um, throughout the years, I like to think I grew in my ability to manage a classroom, but it's not easy. It's not easy to have a classroom full of adolescents, all at different levels of learning and development, and trying to teach them lessons, let alone to just sit down for a while and be quiet. And I remember how, how eye-opening and humbling it was for me, even scary, 
when I would learn from professors, I would learn from principals and administrators that ultimately, no matter how chaotic my classroom seemed, the buck stops here. I'm the adult in the room. And, and you can come up with all these excuses, but, but you don't know how he behaves, and you don't know how she behaves, and I wonder what kind of home they come from, and we kind of get judgmental. But at the end of the day, I was the one who was expected to control the classroom. We ask those same questions in world politics and government, do we not? When I lived with my grandfather, we would sit at the breakfast table each morning and he would read the Daily News and the Jersey Journal every morning without fail. And sometimes when we were eating together, he would put the paper down and he would look at me and he would say, you know, they're lucky I'm not in control. I would have wiped them out long ago. Just because he'd be reading how chaotic and criminal his fellow humans would act. 47%. That number is the average approval rating of presidents ever since 1952. Now, some presidents come, come in at 30%. Some might be more than half. But at the end of the day, American people who've been surveyed feel that every president for the past 70 years hasn't even achieved to half as good as they could do. And so we often ask these questions of our leaders. We ask these questions of ourselves. Who's in control? And those in control, are they doing a good job? Should they be impeached, fired? Now, how do you think Job felt? How would you have felt if you were struck with the same kind of disease that Job was struck with, having just lost all of his family? I think if it were you or me, and we didn't have the Spirit of God, we would want to impeach God. But Job doesn't do that, does he? He says to his wife, shall we not receive good and evil, calamity, chaos, suffering from God? And the text tells us in verse number 10, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. So how do we get there? Well, let's look at this story. Last week, we looked at chapter 1, where Job suffered tremendous loss. The, the most righteous man in the world suffered the most tremendous losses. And now, his suffering will only be multiplied. As Job will suffer terrible physical affliction. And I'm going to take time in a few moments to go through some of the details of that. And let me tell you, it's not for the queasy. So, the text begins with another courtroom scene. The divine council, what's happening in heaven. Verses 1 to 7 says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Now that's a repeat from chapter one. This is exactly what God said. God approved of Job. He used these words to describe Job. He mentioned Job to, to Satan. But now it's going to change a little bit because this is the next episode. So continuing in verse 4, 
It says, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. In other words, Job passed the first test, Satan. What do you think about that? Verse 4. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Let me park there for a moment. We see here another courtroom scene. And this scene is meant to convey a few things. But one is that God is the one who is ruling. It's reminding us that he's the one on the throne. Not Satan, but God. Psalm 82 verse 1 tells us that God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. There is no one in heaven or on earth that rules and reigns anywhere near the authority of God. I think we said this last week, but God has no colleagues, co-workers, or co-pilots. All of these angels are subject to him. And so the narrator told us in chapter 1, and he's telling us again now in chapter 2, that God Almighty is the highest level of authority. He's the one who's in control. But, once again, we find the accuser. In Hebrew, ha-satan, the accuser, the Satan. Now God tells Satan that he is pleased at Job's response to Satan's first barrage of attacks. And Satan sort of responds with, okay, I see that Job chose God above his family and his stuff. But Lord, if you harm him physically, that's what he means by skin for skin. If you harm him, take away his health, that, that would break him. Satan is basically telling God, you know, Job hasn't really been tested. So let's up the ante a little bit. Satan is charging Job with selfishness. He's saying that Job's own life is more important than even his family. And the reason he didn't curse you, God, is because, you know, his family's just not as important as his health. So that's why we've got to up the ante and sort of make him suffer more. Take away his health, take away his physical well-being, make him suffer, and then, then, it will reveal that he's a phony and a fraud. But God says to Satan, you incited me to act. Incited doesn't mean that he necessarily persuaded God to do something God didn't want to do. God only does that which he wants to do. But God is taking responsibility here. As one commentator said, he would not concede any of his authority to Satan. Satan doesn't make God do anything. But God says, you did this to me without reason. There was no reason for Satan to do this. Just like Satan was accusing Job of worshiping God for a reason. There's a play on words here. There's an irony. One commentator points out that irony, that Satan's accusation was that Job served God because of what he had. He didn't fear God without cause, 
but Satan's accusations were without cause, meaning they had no inherent worth, and thus Job worshipped God without cause. But Satan's cynicism was proved wrong in the first episode. Do you see the persistence of the accuser here? I mean, he took away so much that would break so many believers. Job passed the test, and you would think, all right, all right, God, I guess you're right. He's the real deal. No, let's, let's do more. Let, let, let's make it even worse. Let's turn up the volume on Job. Satan is persistent. He is powerful. And Satan's criticism of Job is a criticism of God. He is implying that God is not worthy of worship simply for who he is. That is what's behind the attacks. The attacks on Job are attacks on God. When Satan attacks God's people, it's because he hates God. He does not believe that God is worthy intrinsically of worship. We sang that this morning. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. This is the one who attacks the people of God. Now verse 7 tells us that Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And I want you and me to really empathize with Job here, Job, as we go through some of these things. So I'm going to go through the ailments through the entire book of Job really quick here. And again, I say it's not for the faint of heart. You need to understand what Job suffered. And again, this on top of what just happened in chapter 1. So Job's physical affliction. It included painful pruritus, which is itchy skin. Job 2 verse 8 says he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. His affliction included disfiguration. Job 2.12 says, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. Job's affliction included sores that scab, crack, ooze, and are infected with worms. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. Job 7.5. In addition to that, Job experienced fever with chills. Shuddering seizes my flesh, Job 21, verse 6. My bones burn with heat, Job 30, verse 30, B. He experienced darkening and shriveling of the skin. My skin turns black and falls from me, Job 30, verse 30, A. He experienced swollen eyes, red eyes from all the crying and weeping that he did. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness, Job 16, 16. Job suffered from irritable bowels. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. Job 30, verse 27. In all of this, Job had nowhere to sleep. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long and I am full of tossing till the dawn. Job 7, verse 4. And when he ever did experience sleep, he reports that he had 
chronic nightmares when he says in verse 14 of chapter 7, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. Job also had bad breath. My breath is strange to my wife and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Job 19 verse 17. In other words, Job was someone that you wanted to stay away from. Job suffered emaciation because he couldn't eat. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh. Job 19, verse 20a. And Job experienced chronic pain. The night racks my bones and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. Job 30, verse 17. So please don't get the impression that he just had a few sores and itchy skin. Job was struck. Satan gave Job his best shot. He came short of what God told him you cannot do, which is kill him. He did everything he could to make his life miserable and dark and itchy and irritating and painful. Some commentators traditionally believe this was a form of leprosy. Just like we see throughout the scripture, those with leprosy were outcasts because of all these things. So add to the physical pain, emotional pain, loneliness, suffering, darkness. You know what the real pain is here? Is that from our text we gather that the Lord God allowed this to happen. Christopher Ash says, the Lord gives sobering permissions. And we have seen and have been astonished by these permissions. They will turn out to be good. But at this stage, they shock us. Don't pretend, brothers and sisters, that we cannot be shocked by this. That we cannot be pained by this. And question, why, God, would you allow Satan to do this? But, Job's response Just like we saw last week, Job responded to the reports that his cattle and his house and his land and his children were gone. And now, how does Job respond to the physical affliction? Verses 1 to 10. Verse 8 says, I'm sorry, verse 8 to 10 says, And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Do you you get that picture? Think of all the things we just said about Job and the pain that he was experiencing and he's sitting in the ashes. He was humbled. He went outside the city walls. He sat down on the, the town's trash heap. And in that trash heap, there's a collection of broken pots and city ovens and other refuse. Hartley calls it the abode of the outcasts. And he finds a sharp-edged piece of broken pottery to try to scrape off just so he can find just some relief from the suffering. The man who was mourning the loss of his children now sits on an ash heap while scraping himself. Like I said last week, this is in the Bible because it's to show us We cannot put limits on what God allows. We have the most righteous man in the world. We have the most painful form of suffering. And this indeed is painful. 
And to add pain to that pain, Mrs. Job is of no help. Verse 9, his wife says to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, we don't know. That, did she mean that he should end his own life? Is she suggesting that if he curses God, then God will take away the pain by killing him? And throughout history, she's been beaten up on by a number of commentators. Um, Augustine called Job's wife the devil's assistant. Calvin called her Satan's tool. And they're on to something because she, she obviously is, is not able to enter into the kind of integrity her husband has, but can we also just park for a moment and remember that she's also grieving? She also just lost 10 of her children. She simply didn't have the faith of Job. She could not understand how her husband can quietly accept what is going on with him. So perhaps out of his out of goodwill, good intentions, she wants his pain to end. I'm not justifying her words, but I'm saying there's more to this story than simply being Satan's assistant. She says, curse God and die. One commentator said, his wife's appeal was more trying to Job than the losses themselves, for she spoke out of the strong emotional marital bond between them. She put into words the essence of her husband's temptation. It is folly to adhere staunchly to one's integrity in the face of such tragedy. But Job doesn't accept that, does he? He says, you are speaking as one of the foolish women. Your counsel is utter rubbish. You are just like the unbelieving, foolish women who live contrary to God's ways. In other words, your counsel to me does not come from someone who honors God. It's as though you live a life of immorality. So he rebukes her. He refuses to follow her advice. And then he says that question that we started with. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Now I'm reading from the ESV. Not all of your translations might use the word evil, but it is the same word used for evil. But the term evil here is not moral evil, but calamity. God is not the author of sin. But he is saying that in some sense or another, whether it's a natural disaster or the Sabians or a fire from heaven or a windstorm or my own illness, God is ultimately in control. He could have stopped it. He didn't. And Job does not sin with his lips. That means that there's not the slightest sin found in Job at this point in his plight. So Job accepts it. He accepts what God is allowing to take place. But wait a second. Who's, who's controlling all of this? Who's in charge? Is Satan in charge? What does this chapter and the whole book of Job teach us about who controls the story of the world? Back in 2004, there was a survey in the United Kingdom and this statement I'm about to read had the highest agreement. And the statement is, 
I find it hard to believe in God when there is so much suffering in the world. Maybe you've encountered that with your friends and family. How could there be a God when there's all this suffering? But there was another statement in the same survey that said God could prevent suffering if he wanted to, and that received the lowest agreement. So Christopher Ashe comments on this, and he says, while we decide not to believe in God because of suffering, at the same time, we feel that God, even if he does exist, probably could not do much about suffering, even if he tried. So if we believe in any kind of God, he seems not to be a powerful God. And he goes on to say this perhaps explains why 37% of the British survey reckoned David Beckham was more influential in the world than God. You see, the core question of this book that I hope you resonate with has been whether or not this world is being properly run. Does God really have control of this world? Does the president really have control of what's going on? Does the teacher really have control of the classroom? Like, If the chaos points to the failure of the one who's supposed to be in control, what do we make of God here? Does he deserve to be sacked or fired or impeached for running the world badly? We see this frustration in our world today with so many uprisings and revolutions and murders and assassinations all throughout the world. Even last week I was reading on the news about a teenage boy who was being sentenced because he killed his Spanish teacher over a bad grade. So do you believe that God is in control? Should he be fired? Is he doing a good job? What's going on? We often ask, again, the quiet part out loud, who is in control around these parts? Is God merely using Job to make a point? Is he fickle and unstable, manipulated by Satan? Is he using Job as a pawn to win a bet? These are the questions that haunt us as we read this and and as we look at the world around us. And I have to remind you that the book of Job is not going to give you pat little answers that you can put on your refrigerator. But it does give us, I believe, eternal, life-impacting, spirit-inspired truths that will provide rest in your restlessness and light for your days of darkness. And I want to give you some of those today to, to take home, to meditate on, to give you peace in the midst of these questions. And the first one is clear from the very get-go in Job. Is that Satan's influence, though real and strong, is limited. And thank God for that. See, Job's plight is a result of Satan's work, not God's. And I know that sometimes in life it feels as though Satan has free reign to do whatever he wants. But what do these verses in chapter 1 and 2 teach us? They teach us, number one, that Satan must give an account to God. Satan is not running the show. He is not the one on the throne. He is subservient to God. Secondly, Satan's power is limited by God. Just like in the first chapter, the first test, God says to Satan, you can take away whatever, but don't touch him. 
And Satan had to obey. And now in the second chapter, he says, okay, you can, you can give him physical affliction, but you cannot kill him. Satan's work is limited by God. He does not have free reign. He is not in charge. He is not in control. Satan's time is also limited. And we'll get to that towards the end today. But I want to encourage you to know that whatever power Satan has right now, one day will be no more. And Satan cannot undo what God does. He cannot undo what God does. Well, God is pleased with Job in chapter 1. He's the real deal. And Satan's accusations have proved false twice. In chapter 1, Job did not sin against God. In chapter 2, Job did not sin against God. What God declared to be true about Job is true, and there's nothing Satan can do about it. So Satan's influence is real. Satan's influence is strong. I'm not denying that. This is not your feel-good message today. But the truth that you and I need to understand is that it is limited. Which then leads us to the main point here is that God's control of this world is unlimited and unrivaled. Unlimited and unrivaled. I want to I stay here for a few more uh, moments because this is, this is what we need. Just like last week when we asked the question, why worship God? And the book of Job presents him as the God who made the stars. I hope that today you will walk away being grateful to know God in a deeper way. Because it's the truths about who God is that will provide the light in our dark days. So I'm going to go to some other passages in Job. They'll all be on the screen for convenience. In Job chapter 38, God speaks to Job. And we'll come back to this several times throughout this whole series. But I want to focus on on, on an aspect of God that we must understand, especially in his relationship to Satan. So in Job chapter 38, beginning of verse 1, it says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And now pay special attention to verses 8 through 11. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When it made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, this far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Last week, we considered the God who made the stars. And this week, I want you to focus on the God who rules the seas. Just like in ancient literature, particularly the Old Testament, the stars were symbols of the worship and glory of God, so the seas have a lot of importance in the Old Testament. The seas represent chaos in Scripture. 
The sea was a picture of the evil in this world. A a beast that no man can tame. Even today, with the biggest ships we have, we are still subject to the whims of the sea. Just last year, tragically, the greatest technological advancement of of this, um, I forget what it is, the submersible, right? Going into the depths of the sea and tragically could not make it out alive. How much more thousands of years ago when all they had were sails and wood? And so when an ancient person looked at the, the roaring of the waves and the sea, this represented calamity and evil and wickedness. And often they would compare the suffering of life to the raging of the sea. But do you see what God says here? In verse 6, actually look at verse 8, who shut in the sea with its doors when it, when it burst out of the womb. God, God made the seas. He's the God who rules the seas. Eric Ortland calls this the diapering of the sea. That which man cannot tame, God is in complete control of. And he says in verse 11, and I remember Pastor Joe mentioning this verse in one of his sermons, I think back in in Jonah. This far shall you come and no farther. God prescribes the limits of of chaos and disorder and suffering to the point where we could technically say there is no chaos because there's no uncontrolled chaos in this world. It doesn't mean we have to understand it. But what it means is that we can trust in a God who is greater. Look what it says in Psalm 93, verse 3 to 4. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Brothers and sisters, we serve the God who rules the seas. Now, how does that all sort of play out with suffering and man's responsibility? This is what we confess in our confession of faith in our church, London Baptist, 1689. It says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty of contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Now, it's beyond the scope of this sermon to exposit every word in there. But what I want you to see is that we can confess biblically that God is indeed in control of all things because it's clear in Scripture, and this world is filled with sin and chaos, and God is not the author of sin. And how that all plays out, we're not going to necessarily solve that riddle today. But I think Job had some really good theology When he said, shall we not receive good from God and also accept evil from his hands? Because he is the God who rules the sea. He's the God who sets the limits of chaos. He is the God who is unlimited while everything in the world that seems to be out of control is under his watchful eye. He is the God who rules the sea. And if we go further into this analogy, the sea represents chaos. And in the sea, there is a chief 
sinister character, a chaos creature that we need to reckon with. And he's referred to by two names in Job. The first is not as popular. It's the name Rahab. But in Job chapter 26, verse 12 to 13, it says, By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the flying serpent, the fleeing serpent. So in this poetic analogy, the seas represent chaos. And in the sea, there is a creature, a dragon, a serpent that seems to have some sort of control. And throughout scripture, this also represents something. It represents Satan. And in Job 26, he's referred to as Rahab. A mythical sea creature does not believe that, doesn't mean that Job believes in myths, but it's sort of like when we say things like, can you tame Mother Nature or Father Winter, Father Time? This is the personification of chaos. And Robert File tells us that in rabbinic legend, it demonstrated the connection of Rahab with both creation and Exodus as, quote, the angel of the sea who rebelled at the creation of the world and the prince of Egypt. So Rahab is a name, not the Rahab you know of in the book of Joshua, but this Rahab is referring to this chaos creature, this old serpent, this dragon in the sea that nobody can tame, that no human has power over. And look what it says in Job 26, 12. By his, God's power, he stilled the sea by understanding he shattered Rahab. He is the God who rules the seas. But it's not just Rahab that we're introduced to in the book of Job. It's also, and you know probably where I'm going here, Leviathan. Leviathan is the name, again, for this chaos creature that represents satanic power. In Job 3.8, Job himself says, let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. He's basically saying that when you and I go through traumatic incidents in this world, it's as though someone provoked Leviathan, someone provoked Satan to attack us. Leviathan stands for Satan here. Now back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where man fell into sin, how does Satan appear to Adam and Eve? In the form of what? A serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan comes to us in that subtle yet dangerous form of a serpent. So when you see that in Scripture, it's often referring to him. In Psalm 74, 14, it says of God, You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Over and again, the Bible says two things about Leviathan. He is powerful, but God is more powerful. God crushes Leviathan. Now, that brings us to this famous chapter, Job 41. And I I want you to see the whole thing. And I'm not going to make too many comments on it. Because God now is speaking to Job in the midst of his suffering. And he he is declaring to Job just how powerful Leviathan is. But when I read this, please keep in mind that God is saying this to Job to demonstrate that Job has no power over Leviathan. But God does. That God wants him to understand 
Does those things, Job, that seem beyond your control are indeed beyond your control, but they're not beyond my control. So how does God present Leviathan to Job? Chapter 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak use soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traitors bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. And he is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Verse 11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his godly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the door of his face around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no, one, no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezes flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes from, forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw, and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee for him. Sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like. That's verse 33. On earth, I don't have it in here, but on earth, there is not his like. Does that sound familiar? On earth is not his equal? We sang about that earlier. On earth, there is not his like. A creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all sons of pride. This is Leviathan. Now God may be using an animal Job was familiar with and sort of poetically describing it. And there's debates about is it an alligator is it, or a crocodile? Is it, uh, different, different things have been posed. But at the end of the day, this is a poetic way of demonstrating to Job that there is this chaos creature that man is afraid of, that man cannot prevail against, 
that causes suffering and chaos in this world, this fire-breathing dragon, this old serpent, and he is powerful, and there's no one like him on earth, but God can treat him the way he wants. Isaiah 27.1 says, In that day, the Lord with his hand and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. This is so much more than just simply God destroying the crocodile. This is God having victory over that old serpent. And God is promising this to us. He is not lightening the load in the sense of saying, don't worry about Satan. No, he's telling Job he's very real and he's very powerful. But the God who rules the sea has power over chaos, evil, and Satan. Leviathan seems to have much control right now, Job. But God can tame him. Leviathan might laugh at the javelins and swords of humans, but God can destroy him with a snap of his finger. God is saying to Job here, if you were left to the wiles of Leviathan, you would be dead and gone now. If God didn't put limits on Leviathan, Job would be no more. But God is saying, I can conquer him. And, and, not, and this, this is what I hope I can communicate this to you. He doesn't just conquer Leviathan in Job with, with, with a sort of killing him on the spot. But he really demonstrates his power by limiting his activity to the place where God says, up to here and no more. So that through faith in God, a man who is targeted by Leviathan himself can keep his integrity and worship God for who he is in the face of the devil's lies. That is how God receives glory over Leviathan. God is our mighty warrior. And God is coming to Job in his darkest hour, telling him that he has the power to disarm the one who is tempting and accusing him. God is fighting for Job. God fights for his people. Yes, Satan hates God's people, but praise God, God fights for his people. And how he chooses to do that, that's up to him. Can you do any better? Oh, we might think, if I had the power that God had, I would do this way. The book of Job doesn't tell us. It simply says, accept. Accept it. Because if Satan were really in charge, we'd all be destroyed. If chance were in charge, nothing matters. But because God is in charge, we can trust, even when things look bleak, that he has it under control. So the message of Job chapter 2, as anticlimactic as it might seem, is to accept the will of God. To, to accept it. By faith, have, have peace with God's will. That's what Job has here. He cannot answer all the questions. I cannot answer questions in your life why you're suffering physically, financially, spiritually. But if there's one who is good, who is in control, we can accept his will. But we struggle with this, don't we? We struggle because our knowledge is limited. 
I remember when we moved here from Kearney because the town had bought the building. I probably shared this with you. And the town buying a church building is nothing compared to the suffering that Job is going through. But I remember feeling discouraged because everything just made sense. We start a church. The church is growing. There's a, close, a church that's closing. They have a building. It fit our needs. Like, yeah, God's going to give this to us, right? And then the town bought the building, and that was like, what? Why? And I remember talking to my childhood pastor about this because I had called him originally for some fundraising to help us buy the building, and then like a week later when he called back, or when we got in touch, the building was already gone. So I talked to him about that. And he said this. He said, God's will is exactly what you would do if you had all the facts. And that provided some comfort because I don't have all the facts. But God does. And he knows exactly why he did not give us that building. Tim Keller tells of a story of a kid, seven years old, looking at a rocket about to launch. He has no idea about physics. He doesn't know anything about rocket science. He says to the scientist standing next to the rocket, that rocket's not going to launch. It's too heavy. There's no way it can fly into space. And he mentions the rocket scientist is not going to tell him all the answers and, and take out a chalkboard and start writing all the formulas as to why this rocket will actually make it to space. The kid simply has to trust that the rocket scientist knows what he's doing. And likewise, we are mere children compared to the knowledge of God. And things will not always make sense. We will look at things and say, huh? What? Why? But do you trust God? Do you know that he knows more than you? So we learn from Job's response to accept the will of God because he knows what he's doing. I'm sure you've heard of missionary Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott died at the hands of the Indians in Ecuador. His wife, Elizabeth Elliott, returned to the tribe that killed her husband. She returned there with the gospel. And many came to faith in Christ. And she talked about the difference in her life between resignation and acceptance. Rather than simply being resigned to let fate play its game, Elizabeth Elliott, who lost her husband, her husband doing a good thing, right? A righteous man being killed for preaching the gospel. She accepted God's will. And she gives us here the difference between resignation and acceptance. She says, resignation is surrender to fate. But acceptance is surrender to God. Resignation lies down quietly in an empty universe. But acceptance rises to meet the God who fills that universe with purpose and destiny. Resignation says, I can't. God says, I can. Resignation says, it's all over for me. Acceptance asks, now that I'm here, Lord, what's next? Resignation says, what a waste. Acceptance says, in what redemptive way can you use this mess, Lord? Brothers and sisters, let us accept by faith that the God who rules the sea, the God who conquers Leviathan, has it all under control. Now, I want to leave you with this every time we come to Job, and that is gospel light for days of darkness. Because, you know, what I just said to you Let's face it, that's still hard, right? You're not thinking, oh, okay. 
He told me to accept God's will. That's comforting. There's some privilege we have as Christians that Job didn't have that can help us make that connection where we truly can enter in to whatever suffering God may bring our way and have hope and joy and contentment. And it happens to us because of the gospel. You see, the Bible does not answer all these questions, but the gospel does resolve all of that tension. And if you believe these things by faith that I'm about to remind you of, then it will help you and me to accept God's will with more joy. Sometimes this world seems crazy. How does the gospel shed light on this? Well, two things, really, really simple. As God fights for us against evil, it is most manifest in the gospel because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who not only conquers the sea, but he conquers Satan. What God hinted at in Job 41, Jesus Christ fulfills for us in the gospel. So in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus is on the boat with his disciples and they're in the sea, right? The place of chaos where the storm was raging and they thought they were all going to die. Jesus is perfectly asleep. Why? Because he has it under control. Because he sets the limits. Because he says, just like God and Job, up to here and no more. And when the time was right, Christ arose and he said to the storm, peace be still. And his disciples said this. They said, who is this? that even the sea and the winds obey him. Brothers and sisters, do you understand this? By virtue of your faith in Christ, the God who rules the seas is your God. He is your Savior. He is your friend. He is the God who rules the seas, and he shows us by his power that he has conquered the chaos of this world. Not only does he rule over the seas, but he rules over Satan. Praise God. Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15 says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Look at verse number 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. On the cross, it might seem like the serpent had his way. Leviathan bit the heel of the Savior, but he crushes the serpent's head. Just like God promised to Adam and Eve in the garden. He made his enemies an open shame. He disarmed the rulers. God conquers the old serpent, not merely by destroying him physically, but by hitting him where it hurts, by showing him that he is actually God who is worthy of sincere worship, rescuing his people from the clutches of Satan himself. Jesus is truly the only dragon slayer. And when he rose from the grave... He put an end to any claim that Satan can have in this world. We sang in this morning, a mighty fortress is our God. 
the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Because Christ has conquered Satan, the New Testament can tell you and me, resist the devil and he will flee. Job would have longed for that, but we have that in the gospel. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world because of what Christ did in conquering Satan for us. And so if there's anything you get out of what the whole Bible teaches you about evil in this world is this, brothers and sisters, that evil has an expiration date. Its timing is limited and Christ will reign forever. Because one day, the Bible tells us that there will be no more sea. Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. You know how many times I read that and I thought, that's just like an incidental thing. For some reason, in the new heavens and new earth, God doesn't feel like we need seas anymore. That's pretty cool. But then when you understand that a sea in the Old Testament represents chaos and, and wickedness and a world that seems out of control, God says in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no more sea, no more chaos, no more wickedness. And what about the sea creature? What about Leviathan? What about that old serpent? Well, the Bible tells us in Revelation 12, 9, that the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then in chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan has an expiration date too. Now we know, because we're Christians, that God is in control. But we don't know why he's doing what he's doing. We don't understand his timing. We don't agree with his methods. But can you trust? I ask you this morning. Can you trust that what he's doing leads to the greatest glory and your greatest good? If you can't, then look at the cross. Because who could understand why someone as perfectly righteous as Jesus Christ would have to be nailed to a cross, shedding his blood, dying a humiliating death? But when you understand that he did that to save us from our sins, that this was ordained of God, that he would suffer in our place, and God, through the atonement and resurrection of Christ, would bring forth his greatest glory then I encourage you, hang on. Nothing revolutionary today. No 12 steps to being happy when times are gray. But hang on. Hold tight. Hold Jesus' hand when you feel you're in the midst of the sea. Hide behind Christ when Leviathan seems to raise his head in your life. Because your conqueror has come. And evil will decease and Satan will be ultimately taken out of the equation and in this you can rejoice because evil and chaos and Satan might seem to have a tight grip on this world or on you right now but our Lord Jesus Christ our conquering Savior has dealt them a fatal blow their power is limited their time is short but our risen Savior shall reign forever 
and ever. Amen.